0: Hey, good morning, everybody. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Luke, and I have the privilege of sharing a message with you. Um, good to see you. Some new faces here as well today. I am, um, yeah, I'm really excited because we're in the middle of a series that I'm so excited it's so close to my heart. It's been brewing in us for some time as a church, and um, finally um, we get to we get to work through it. Now, if you if you maybe you are new to church, maybe you're new to the faith as well, um, you couldn't have chosen a better week to come to church. Uh, we are looking at what the Bible teaches about heaven. Uh, what is heaven really like? I think for many of us, outside the church and inside the church. Kind of when we think of the future, when we think of life after death and the world to come, we know the Bible's got some stuff to say. We know that people have sometimes got quite extreme and a little bit crazy in some of what they've articulated in it. So we're a little bit nervous maybe of it. And so we kind of just stay away and leave it in a little bit of a gray kind of, I'll think about it when I get there space. And the danger is that, the truth of what the Bible does teach never gets to inform how we live in the present right now. And actually, what we believe about the future radically influences how we live in the present. It's why we've called this series Eternal Beings in a Temporary World. It seems that to be human is to carry within our hearts an innate sense, like almost... Uh, A a knowledge woven into us as human beings that there is life after death. Almost every civilization in history has a belief or a hope of life to come on the other side of death. The aborigines in Australia believe in life on the far side of the western horizon. The Mexicans and Peruvians in South America believe that after death you go to the sun or the moon. Even the ancient Babylonians, their belief captured in the tale of Gilgamesh, Refer to a place where heroes go to rest, and even hence at a tree of life there as well. It seems that for most, if not all, cultures throughout history, there is a sense at which death is not the end. There is something more on the other side. Uh, there is life that continues. Now, now, what we want to explore today is what does the Bible teach? about that life. I put to you probably the reason every human being uh, thinks like that, every culture captures something of that, is because within us as human beings there is the sense that we were created for more than just this life. It's why death feels unnatural to us. A, a, a cheetah hits an impala and we spring back in the field and we all go, wow, that was amazing to see. Yeah, it's a little bit all oh, sad or whatever. Radically different than when a human being leaves us. It feels unnatural. Natural in nature with animals, but not to be human is something sacred. Something, something special that it, it, it doesn't make sense that this is just it. Death feels unnatural to us. For those of us who are Christ followers, the subject of heaven is critical for our followership of Jesus. J.C. Ryle said it like this, the man who's about to sail for Australia or New Zealand as a settler is naturally anxious to know something about his future home, its climate, its employments, its inhabitants, its ways, and its customs. All these are subjects of deep interest to him, You are leaving the land of your nativity. You are going to spend the rest of your life in a new hemisphere. It would be strange indeed if you did not desire information about your new abode. Now surely if we hope to dwell forever in that better country, even the heavenly one, we ought to seek all the knowledge we can get about it. Before we go to our eternal home, we should try to become acquainted with heaven. Is what he says. Jonathan Edwards, the famous American theologian, said this: "It becomes us to spend this life only as a journey toward heaven, to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should why should we labor for? Um, sorry, why should we labor labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is pr- the proper end and true happiness?" Edwards, in his early 20s, composed a list of resolutions on how he would spend his life. And among them, he said this, quoting him, Resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. To obtain as much happiness in heaven as I possibly can through what I do, On Earth Now, what does the Bible mean when it uses the word heaven? You might be uh, interested to know that heaven doesn't always mean the same thing in the scriptures. There's a little bit of mystery when the Bible speaks about heaven. In fact, there's at least three ways that the word heaven is used in the Bible. The first one speaks of the heavens. And what it means there is the atmosphere. In other words, the air above that envelops the planet. We see this in Isaiah 55 verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven... So and do not return the idea being the rain and the snow come down from the atmosphere. The Bible uses the word heaven or the heavens to refer to the atmosphere or air above the earth. The second uh, meaning of the word heaven that we see in the scriptures is what we call space. Genesis 1:14 and 15 and God said let there be lights stars in the expanse of the heavens to separate day from night, speaking of the sun, and let them be signs for the seasons and for the days and the years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens. Now, the Bible uses the word heaven to speak about space as well. Psalm 19 verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims its handiwork. Now today, we didn't all gather to speak about space and the atmosphere, right? Right? But there is a connection in understanding between the heavens, space and the atmosphere, as well as heaven in the third sense that the word is used. It's not just a lack of Hebrew words that results in that word being chosen. Something of the heavens declare the wonder and glory of heaven. The heavens speak of the sheer size and wonder of what heaven will be like. In a sense, the stars at night, tonight is maybe a beautiful night to see the stars as you look out over the, ski, the sea in and see the stars. What it should do is should whet your appetite to understand something of the, the wonder of heaven, but also the incredible God who must have made them and and what the heavens also do is they remind us of our limitation to understand the hev- uh, heaven the- Space is so big and so vast, and we can understand and perceive so little of the wonder of what it really is. So too it is of heaven. It's so great. It's so vast. We're so limited in what we can understand of heaven. And so helpful just to remember, as we explore heaven, we we embark on this journey as kind of humble explorers, aware of our limitations. And the third way the word heaven is used in the Bible, obviously, is to speak of what we're looking at today, heaven. Isaiah 63, verse 15. Look down, this is God, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. What is heaven? Heaven is God's holy and beautiful habitation. It's the most distinguishing characteristic of heaven is that it is the dwelling place of God. Heaven is God's home. It's, it's, it's where, the place where God is at its center. Um, you object and you say, maybe, but isn't God everywhere? And it's true. God is everywhere, but, but, but heaven is God's home. It's the place where God most fully reveals himself. It's the place where God is most truly seen for who God really is. It's the place where the glory of God is most purely and most clearly displayed. Heaven is separated from earth. Heaven is separated from earth, which means it's totally and completely immune to the effects of the fall. Sin entered the world through the fall, but not into heaven. Heaven remains immune to the effects of the fall. It's still a place where the glory of God shines, where it radiates unhindered and uninhibited by sin and evil, which is why it remains the great hope for a broken world. In spite of all sin and tragedy that pervades the earth, heaven still remains untouched, uncontaminated, undefiled with the glory of God. It's there in its purest sense, which is why the counterattack that comes to earth is launched from heaven. God's counterattack into our world is launched from heaven. Heaven is invading earth through Christ Christ. And then continues the invasion of earth through the church, transforming and renewing the world into heaven's likeness as it pours out. If you imagine with me, I don't know if you ever saw a science experiment like this. There was some chemical liquid that I remember Mr. Ashmead put into a little beaker at school one day. And then he dropped this drop of some or other chemical. Maybe the liquid was blue. And what happened? As this chemical hit the water, what happens? Slowly but surely, the color of the water transforms and becomes entirely different. It becomes crystal clear again. That's what's happening. Heaven, crystal clear, undefiled, uncontaminated, through Christ is invading earth. And then through the church, the mission of God is making it on earth as it is in heaven. That's what's happening. Uh, Heaven is filling the earth once again with the glory of God. That's what we give ourselves to as a church. That's why we believe we're on mission. It's why George's prayer today was so critical, that there are some in our lives who do not know you, you do not yet know Christ. There are some in our lives whose, whose lives are wracked by addiction, by brokenness, by hurts that they've experienced. And Jesus wants to, in the midst of that place, bring healing and hope, heaven to come in the midst of brokenness in our lives as he renews us and redeems us. Can't help but just stop and plug Celebrate Recovery. Every Thursday night, 6.30, in this venue, hurts, habits, and hang-ups. If you know someone who's struggling with a hurt, something that has happened, a tragedy that has come across their lives, and, 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 or habits, an addiction or something you're stuck in and you can't seem to break free. Hang-ups, a depression or an anxiety or a state of being whereby you just can't get past that thing. Come on Thursday night. It's Celebrate Recovery is a place where Christ meets us and restores us. And, and somehow our brokenness that we bring in becomes and attracts heaven to come and to renew and to restore us. That's what we do. It's what we're a part of. What can we know from the Bible about heaven? What can we know from the Bible about heaven? The primary way the Bible describes heaven, or how does the Bible describe uh, heaven? The primary way the Bible describes heaven is through metaphors that appeal to our imagination. Through metaphors that appeal to our imagination. Why? Isn't that just for children's stories? No, 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 no. Let me tell you why. Because heaven is so far beyond our ability to understand. It's beyond the limitations of language, of concepts, of even our intellect. We, 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 it's, please hear me in the most loving way. It's a little bit like trying to explain the internet to an ant right? We do not possess the faculties with which to wrap our brains around the wonder of what heaven is. We're finite beings in a temporary world trying to understand eternal, glorious truths. And so God in His wisdom gives us images and metaphors with which we can understand. the. Yes, there's mystery, but these these things teach us truths about the wonder of heaven and bring clarity to us as well. So let's explore a few of these texts. We'll look at Uh, I think we've got three or four, we'll move through as we go. Number one, let's look at John chapter 14, verse 1 to 3. This is the night before Jesus is crucified. Jesus is there, he's got his disciples with him, and he knows tomorrow he'll be crucified. And for them, the whole world is about to be turned upside down. I mean, they'd left everything. they left their nets, they left their family businesses, they'd left their income, their tax collecting stands, everything. And they put all their eggs in the basket of Jesus and they were following him as best they could. And now Jesus was about to ascend to heaven in a few weeks' time. And Jesus was preparing them and readying them for his departure. And this is what Jesus teaches them. John 14, verse one to three. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. Jesus weaves in this teaching of heaven in his final moments with his disciples. He's reassuring them, he's consoling them, but he's, he's teaching them about the world to come, about life to come with him. And he uses some descriptions here in my Father's house. The first thing that we see here, and probably the most important thing about heaven, is Jesus says this, I will come and take you to myself. You see that? I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Heaven is being with Christ. Heaven is being with Christ. I see there's a typo on that slide, sorry, that you may be also. Uh, Can we just bang it up there? Sorry, let me just clarify what I'm not saying. Um, That you may be also, not maybe also. Uh, Anyway, that you may be also. Heaven is being with Christ. It was the same for Paul as well. When Paul years later was reflecting back and teaching the church about heaven, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8, yes, we're of good courage. Why? Why in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of, of, of pain and suffering and heartache and persecution, why can we be of good courage? And we would rather be away from the body and be at home with the Lord. How does Paul think of heaven? How does Paul, the most defining characteristic of, of life on the other side of death is being at home with the Lord. In my father's house, I will bring you to where? To a bedroom, to a garden, to, no, to myself. Most distinguishing characteristic and important aspect of heaven is we will be with Christ. And that should overshadow everything else I say today in our hearts. As much as all the other wonderful things we're about to unpack are going to be true... Being with Christ is the great truth. It's 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 like this. Imagine with me, there was a wedding ceremony, and the groom was standing over here, and uh, and the bride was about to walk in. And as the bride arrived at the back of the auditorium to walk down the aisle, the groom was all concerned about: Do the colour of the serviettes match the colour of the flowers? And I wonder what the weather's going to be like this afternoon. We'd say, What of that, groom? You've missed the point, buddy. The whole point of all of that other stuff, as beautiful and wonderful and glorious as it is, is because of her. It's because you're with Christ, is the is what it is. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, the streets of gold will have small attraction to us. The music of the angels will but slightly enchant us, compared with the king in the midst of the throne. He it is who shall rivet our gaze, absorb our thoughts, enchain our affection, and move all our sacred passions to the highest pitch of celestial order we shall see God heaven will be being with Christ what else I want to say about heaven think think home think family in the best most wonderful sense think home and think family in the best sense. Jesus speaks of, in my father's house, there is a place for us, a place where you belong with our father, in, our, in his father's house. It's a place with beloved family. Jesus is, is he uses the word in Greek here for you, uh, not the singular word, it's the plural. The, the the best translation of that would be the Texas version of the Bible, you all, right? You all is the, most, the best translation there. He's speaking to It's not just a house like everybody gets their own little cabin in the mountains in splendid isolation and independence. In C.S. Lewis's depiction of hell, that's what it looks more like. People sprawled out individually, cut off from community all over the place because they can't bear to live and function together. It's only a matter of time before they argue and shut each other down. Heaven is community, it's family. For Jesus, his, his spiritual brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers and children, were closer to him than his biological uh, mother and father and brothers and sisters, if you look at Jesus' teaching. In fact, the meaning that we have in our nuclear biological families is extrapolated from our theology of the family of the church, which is extrapolated from our family in heaven. And our eternal being together, which informs the way we love and care and sacrifice for one another as a church, which shapes how we do it in our biological families as well. There's a part of this verse that we we miss because we don't carry the context that Jesus was speaking into. Jesus' time was so different than ours in many ways. At the time of Christ, a young man, if he fancied a young woman, would would, would become betrothed to her. He would ask her. they could be married and uh, if she said yes he would then leave and go off to his father's house and at his father's house he would build a home a house for them, and once the home was constructed and was ready to receive the new family, he would return. If you know the parable of the ten virgins in the Bible, he would return when she did not know yet and expecting him, and he was ready, and then they would be married. There would be a great feast and a great celebration, and after that, she would return with him. To his father's house to the clan and the tribe where they would live together out there the the call of God on their lives in their community but the groom would return to fetch his bride and take her home to the place that he had made for them that 's the language behind you that Jesus is speaking of it's of lo- it's of loving family it's of belonging it's of it's of family and community in the best, most beautiful sense of the word. It's why Jesus went to the cross and then to the Father to prepare a home and family for us. It's why family is so important to our lives as human beings. I think it was uh, David Brooks, uh, the political journalist from the States, who came to faith late in life uh, and, and, and writes beautifully, he, he was articulating something from a friend of his. I'm just trying to do it from memory. He's, he said, uh, one of his friends, a lady, came to faith, came to believe in God when she held her newborn baby, and she realized she loved this child far more than evolution required. She realized there was something more primal to her, more fundamental to her in in what she saw in this. There's something of family. And the reason that's there is because this appeals and echoes back to that world that awaits us in God. Think family think home in the most beautiful sense. Revelation 21 and 22. This is John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, who has a vision of heaven and the way things are going to play out in the future. And this is what he has to say. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, I'm sure that's metaphorical. The sea in Bible times was symbolic of fear and chaos, and there, were, there was a belief of sea monsters. There was uncertainty of wind and storms. You were out in a feeble little vessel. At any moment, a storm could come up and take your life. The sea, it wasn't like, let's go to the beach today and have a swim in this beautiful sea like we have today. It was a very different world then. And so I'm assuming it means something along those lines as I've looked and studied it. It was important. I did study it because I'm, I love the sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You see the intimacy and relationship here. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he carried me in the Spirit to a great high mountain. And showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Here is a mountain with a beautiful view of the city. And having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun and moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. And they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever, eternal beings in a temporary world. Again, there's much mystery here. John's using the language that he had, the concepts that he had 2,000 years ago, to articulate infinite truths. We as well are finite human beings. Our brains can only understand so much. Again, uh, one author said it's a bit like standing on the verge of the ocean with two teacups, right? The teacups being what we can understand and and the ocean being the wonder of what heaven really is. I'm grateful for these two teacups, but let's not get ahead of ourselves and think we're going to wrestle this whole thing down. Are you ready for a shocker? We're not going to live in heaven. This passage speaks of the new heavens and the new earth and when the bible is speaking that the, what i'm using when i use the word heaven i'm not speaking about the geographical place of heaven i'm speaking about the restored redeemed renewed transformed earth that is earth and heaven and the two have been brought back into unity together because sin is no longer present and heaven and earth and the dwelling place of god is with mankind now, now suddenly heaven and earth are, are overlapping in ways like they did back then in the garden but You and I will live out our eternity on a renewed and redeemed earth. Perhaps some of you knew that. For some of you, wow, that may be a little bit unsettling. But but we're using heaven to, to, to describe an earth which has been restored and transformed into its perfect state in renewed, restored relationship to heaven. I love that, to be honest. I love that because it speaks of our existence in heaven. It's not that foreign. In many ways, it's totally unlike this world. In some ways, it, it's not. I think there's something about sitting around a fire with your favorite people in the world and just talking. And you don't have to, you don't have to impress anybody. You don't have to pretend. You just be with your best people in the world. I, 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 it's ordinary. I think Jesus, on the other side of the resurrection, Jesus gets together his mates and he throws a braai on the beach and they cook fish together. I think that just, that just appeals to me. It's simple things, the most wonderful things in the world. But it's, it's happening on a renewed and redeemed earth where heaven and earth have been restored to one another again. The next thing I want to say here is that it's a place of unmatched beauty. John says, Radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. Remember, these are John's attempts using the language and the knowledge that he had to articulate something that is far greater than what his words can describe, but is like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. The most beautiful glory radiating from this place. The kind of place that you never get tired of seeing. Sean was at the Grand Canyon a few weeks ago can only imagine what it's like to stand on the verge of the Grand Canyon I heard there's this there's this glass bridge that goes out across the canyon and you end up walking out over this glass bridge over this infinitely high canyon just in awe of the splendor of this place imagine living in the midst of that sense of awe sorry trying to track me down on the camera kind of place you never get tired of seeing. You're always in awe. There's no temple there. Why? Because the temple was the place where the presence of God dwelt. Now the presence of God is throughout. Heaven and earth restored. God's presence throughout. For the glory of God gives it light and the lamp is the lamb. God's glory is radiating through creation in an undiminished, undefiled, perfect way and you and I will be living in it. I think there's something of natural wonders to be seen as well. Remember, we were just talking about the serviettes here at the wedding. But but, but there's this reference to this glorious mountain with a view of the city that just is magnificent. Heaven is also defined by what is not there. There is the absence of all evil and suffering and death. In heaven, there is no devil, there's no, no evil, there's no sin. There's no more pain, no more suffering, no more crying, no more mourning. All of those things are no more. The only tears that are cried in heaven, the sole purpose of your tear duct in heaven will be tears of joy. When you see and your heart is overwhelmed with wonder and goodness. I struggle to even imagine what it's like. I'm sure you do too. I struggle to imagine what it would be like. Tolkien in his book, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, speaking of Sam uh, Sam speaking to a great kind of wise sage in Gandalf. I thought you were dead, Sam said. But then I thought I was dead myself. And then he says, Is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? And the answer is yes. And I think one of the things that, what the, that this means is residents of heaven have been so transformed by the power of Christ that they have no desire that could lead us to hurt another person. There's nothing within us that would cause us to hurt someone. No selfishness, no pride, no arrogance that would cause us to snub or look down or hurt or, or cause pain to another. Our nature, our very being, the, the very longings of our heart, our personalities as well, are so characterized by love and selflessness and humility and a value of other people that we, we find it incapable of hurting and harming another person person just stop for a second and imagine what is that like the writer to the Hebrews describes it like this Hebrews 8 verse 10 for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord I will put my laws into their minds I will write them on their hearts And I will be their God, you heard this in Revelation, and they will be my people. Something inside their hearts, the law of God, the the will of God, the desires, the character of God that that manifest in the law, that now live in the hearts of Christ followers who've been transformed by Christ, plays out in how we interact in one another's lives. That's why St. Augustine, over a thousand years ago, said, Love God and do whatever else you like. Sounds almost blasphemous, but if if your heart is like the heart of Christ and you do whatever else you like, you will be only a blessing to other people. C.S. Lewis' book, The Last Battle, one of the characters, Lucy, she says this. She says, "I, I have the feeling we've got to the country where everything is always allowed. You don't need to ask permission when your heart is like the heart of Christ. You just do it and it's lovely. When you, when you view other people the way we will view other people in heaven, you, whatever you do will be beautiful and a blessing to them. Everything is allowed because our hearts are like the heart of Christ. Try for a second and imagine yourself without sin. One of the most difficult things to do. There will come a time where you will never be tempted again. It will be impossible to be insecure. You'll never have the feeling of being threatened by another human being, of being vulnerable. Never have to fight for your place in the world or feel like you don't belong. You will always feel like you belong. There will be not a shred of the sense of feeling like you're on the outside and everybody else is on the inside. Someone, a total stranger, will walk in the room and you will not for a second feel afraid or nervous. You will be thrilled at the prospect of meeting them. Lucy said in Lewis's book, Isn't it wonderful? Have you noticed that one can't feel afraid even if one wants to? It's just it's just just gone. And it's not just that evil stops it's not just that evil ceases. It's not like a a wizard waves a wand and then evil is gone. Rather... Suffering is swallowed up, we read. Death is swallowed up. It's taken in and it's healed and it's transformed. Because Jesus became a human being and God stepped into the midst of broken humanity and he died on the cross and and he took upon himself sin and suffering, he, he brings with himself the cure. He brings heaven into the midst of the evil and the suffering. And so through the gospel, evil is not just disappeared it's actually undone it's it's not vanished it's undone it's imagine through the power of Christ evil is unpicked stitch by stitch by stitch from your life from your heart from your being the gospel gets into that dark place and causes life to flourish and grow that's what Christ did Every tear is wiped away. The healing, transforming work of Christ will retrospectively, it will work back from that moment when Christ returns. We heard of it two weeks ago. When Christ returns, evil doesn't just vanish as if it was never there. No, no. The gospel works backwards and undoes it. It meets grace to every point. It brings healing to every point. Every brokenness is restored. God gets there and heals and renews it. It's why we believe in something like Celebrate Recovery. It's why we minister to each other. It's why we bless each other. It's why we forgive. Because the gospel doesn't just overlook and pretend it doesn't exist. The gospel gets in there and transforms and renews it. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Yes. There is not a wound this side of heaven. They will not be healed, undone, made up for. Every stitch, one by one, unpicked and remade in light of Christ. Isaiah 25 verse 7, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. One of the images and metaphors of heaven is a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, praise God. Of rich food full of marrow. You know those like gooey, soft, tender pieces of meat. I'm sorry to the vegans amongst us. I'm sure there's veggies there too of rich food, full of marrow, and well-aged, well-refined wine. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of all His people He will take away from the earth for the... For the Lord God has spoken. Creation, the earth, will be restored to abundance, to beauty, to deliciousness. And there will be no more lack. The picture in the Bible is of delicious food and well-aged wine. It's a table of plenty, of abundance. There is no more lack. There's no shortage. There's enough for everybody. You you don't have to ever wake up again and wonder, uh, how am I going to feed my family tomorrow? Where are we going to get food the next day? There's no one wondering about what's going to happen. No, it's there. You just know it. It's abundant. It's blessed. It's beautiful. And, And you can just enjoy it. There's no more fighting for reason. Resources. There's no more scarcity. There's enough for everyone to enjoy. It's glorious. It's why. On the 4th of December, in two weeks' time, Yes, the 4th of December, in two weeks' time, at 4 o'clock, we as a church are going to have a feast. 4 o'clock in the afternoon till about 6.30, we are setting up jumping castles and water slides and food trucks and music and lawn games and everything. As we gather here as a people, and for for the two and a half or so hours that we meet, we're going to forget about everything else that's happening in the world around us. And we're going to remember that we are eternal beings, and that this is a temporary state that exists in our world, and we are going to enjoy some of the finest things in life, some of the best people in the world, great company, great food, great friendship, great fun, as we just celebrate the goodness of God to our lives. Sounds good, huh? Fourth of December at four o'clock. We'll tell you more about it next week and send it out in the broadcast list. Okay, if this is true, which it is, how then should we live now? Three simple points. Number one, set your life on following Christ. Set your life on following Christ. Christ, right? Because heaven is God's home, because the the, the main event of heaven is the person of Christ, because Jesus is the the bride in that picture, and everything else I've mentioned is the serviette, right? And the flowers, etc., etc. Because of this, set your life on following Christ now. Heaven cannot primarily exist for our own sake. Why I say that it's important? Because so often we think of heaven in a selfish way. We think of heaven as like a kind of pleasure factory that's going to satisfy all my needs and desires and wants, you know. You think of some of the, some of the movies where you've heard of, um, never mind, I'm going down a rabbit hole. Let's pull it back. We haven't got lots of time. It seems obvious, but often we think about heaven in a selfish way. What's it going to be like for me? How am I going to feel all the things I'm going to do and enjoy? And it's, it's like heaven has been reduced to this place that satisfies my desires and my want. It will, but it's so much bigger and better than just that. Jesus is the one who is the bride that captivates. He's actually the groom in the analogy, but follow me here. It captivates, he captivates our attention and dwarfs everything else that's there. But what if for you, that's a bit of a downer? It's possible that some of us here today hear that and go, oh, you mean it's just Jesus. I was looking forward to it. I want to say to you, it's because you don't know Christ. It's because you don't know Jesus for who he really is. And the way you ready yourself for heaven, the first thing you do is you make Christ the great great pursuit of this life now. Let me ask you another way. What would happen if, God were to take you right now in the the way that you currently are and teleport you into heaven right now? No changing your heart, no changing your mind. You, just as you sit here today, what would happen if God were to take you and plonk you into heaven right now? Well, Wouldn't it only be a matter of time before you start to see all the beauty and start to think to yourself, hey, how can I put some of that in my house? How can I keep some of that for myself? How can I put that in my room where I can look at it? Wouldn't it only be a matter of time before you say something hurtful to somebody, before you think something nasty about somebody else? Wouldn't it only be a matter of time before you start to feel alone and isolated because of all the filtering of your thoughts and desires and words you have to do so that they don't find out who you really are and what you really think? All of those perfect people. There's a Netflix series. I haven't watched it, but I heard about what it's about. It's called The Good Place. It's the story of this lady who dies and she ends up going to The Good Place. And she gets there, and she quickly realizes she doesn't belong here, because all these people are so nice, and she's trying to all the time like, hide and, and make sure they don't find out who she really is. I haven't seen the series so, I'm not like recommending everybody watch it, but I thought the concept is quite real. you know? It'll only be a matter of time before I start to feel lonely and isolated, because of all the times I've got to cover up all the things that I, you know, I, I, I really think and feel. It'd be like living with a secret every moment of every day, aware of how we did not belong and we're not fit for that world, feeling like an imposter waiting for somebody to find us out because we don't belong there. Okay, so if that's true, what's your plan? I mean, we all want to get to heaven, so what's your plan? And the answer is, We can't change our own hearts. We can't change our own natures. We can try and we do our best and we help maybe a little bit, maybe we don't, maybe we make it worse. When Jesus spoke those words in John 14 about my father's house, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, verse 6: this is what he said to his disciples in John 14:6. Jesus said to them, I am the way, I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Through Jesus, something supernatural, something that you cannot manufacture yourself happens as Christ undertakes to transform your very nature, ridding you as evil is unpicked in your own heart and you are transformed. You become a person. He writes his law on your heart. Your nature is redeemed and renewed, and you become the kind of person who arrives in heaven and doesn't feel like an imposter. You belong there, but you've got to realize, as I say that, your own, um, your own impotence to do that for yourself. None of us can do that. We need a power, pure, undefiled, uncontaminated, outside of ourselves to transform us, otherwise we are hopeless to get in, right? That is Christ. If heaven is to be heaven and remain undefiled by our presence, we need a help outside of ourselves to transform us, and that is the gospel, friends. So, number one, make Christ, set your life on following Christ. Number two, Let the perspective of heaven, let this reality transform how you live in the here and now. If you were to take a one-ran coin, a one-ran coin is about as big as my thumbnail, right? Imagine that one-ran coin in your hand, and then you you close one eye and you hold that one-ran coin right close to your eye. What can you see right now? You can see very little, right? All you can see is this one coin in front of you. It's real. It's, it's so close. It's all you can see. It, it, is it a big thing, that one-ran coin? No, it's actually very small. You know, if you, if you take it away from me, oh, you realize it's actually not a big thing. But when you bring it so close, it, it feels like that's all that there is. Is it the only thing in the world that's real? No, because if you look like this and then you try and walk, it's only a matter of time before you discover how real the chair is you're about to fall over as well, hey? What's the significance of that coin? It's just so close to you and you've held it so close that you've let it blind you to the reality of everything else that is there. And today, as we look at the reality of heaven, what we're trying to do is to pull the coin away of this temple life and realize it's real, it's important, it's here, but it's located in this reality. You can't allow this life and your wants and your pressures and your needs and everything else that is to blind you to the reality of the world that is real, that Christ invites us into. This message is an attempt to pull the coin away, coin away from your eye to say, you were created for a world that is greater than this. Allow the reality of heaven to work backwards into your present world now, to inform every decision that you make, every every desire that you have and allow to live on within you, every thought that you think, so as to, to reflect that reality, not this pressing one. That our world would suck you into. If you were here last week, break the windows of the casino, put the clock on the wall. Last one, third point as we land give yourself to becoming heaven like. Give yourself to becoming heaven-like. Our issue with heaven is not so much about getting in. It's about becoming the kind of person for whom heaven would be an appropriate and welcome setting. Let me ask you this question. What's bigger, heaven or God? The answer is God. God is infinitely bigger and greater than even heaven. He- heaven is the place where God is everywhere all at once and God is inescapable, right? Right? it's inescapable. God is inescapable in heaven. So heaven becomes the place for whom people who want to sin will find it miserable. Can I ask you a very awkward question that nobody should answer and for a first, for a little while I'll feel uncomfortable and then hopefully it'll make sense in the end. Neither does Siri. (laughs) Don't answer this question. Have any of you ever committed sexual sin? Okay, all of us are going yes, yes. Okay. Have any of you ever committed sexual sin while one of your parents is watching? Hopefully, you you know you go no, 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 no. I would never want to do that. Okay. Now, now because God is everywhere in heaven. There's going to be no place that you can sneak away for a quick sin that he won't ever see, right? If you intend on holding on to some of these things that are part of you now, you will find heaven a claustrophobic place where you won't know where to go to, you know, to, to, to do these, to gossip or to snigger or to hang on to. It, it will become an unbearable place for those of us who choose to remain sinful. Heaven is, God is everywhere, and it's when we're in harmony that heaven is beautiful. It's when we play out of key that it feels yucky and you, you, there'll be no way, nowhere to run for a quick sin, right? So, so give yourself now on earth to habits and practices that ready you for that kind of world. Serve notice on sin in your life. Serve notice on sin in your life say this far and no longer. Why? Because I am an eternal being. I'm readying myself for that world with God. I long nothing for nothing more in the world than to be with Him and to see Him. And when I get there, I want to belong and be part of that family and so therefore now that's why I wake up in the morning and I read my Bible that's why I pray that's why I join a life group and I love and I serve and I care for other people that's why I'm repenting of sin it's why I'm confessing sin to a friend of mine and trusting that I'm being changed as I confess sin and invite God's power to change me not out of Christian duty because it's the right thing to do why? Because that's who I ultimately will be. And now, this life is about becoming the kind of person who, day by day by day, is being transformed by Jesus, so that when I arrive there, I belong. That's why we do these things. That's why we are a part of spiritual disciplines. That's why we do. That's why we allow ourselves to be pruned. I think for some of us, man, we need, to, we need to be more radical in our followership of Jesus. Radical to devotion to Jesus doesn't seem that radical when you understand the awesome nature of heaven, right? When we really understand Jesus' offer to heaven and eternal life with Him, it doesn't look that radical to give up your temporary possessions. It doesn't look that radical to spend your life loving other people. It doesn't look, if you were to go to Mother Teresa and you just say to her, uh, wow, you're such a radical follower of Jesus, you know what she'd probably say to you? not really, I I just love Jesus and I love people and that's what I do, you know? Become the kind of person in your day-to-day life who is being more and more transformed to be a citizen of heaven one day. And whilst you do that, here's the last thing as I land, what will happen. We as a community will be the kind of people who are more and more becoming representatives of heaven. And the South Peninsula, as George said that word earlier as we worshipped, in your friendships and your families, you'll be able to invite people into us as a church community. And they'll look and they'll see, wow, I don't see a community of people like this. You mean these people pitch up to serve other people? Yep. In a world that's living for themselves, these guys do this. You know, we become an outpost to heaven now in this moment of history to the world that God has put us in the midst of to be light to. We must land in prayer. Can we stand together? Sorry, I realize I went a little bit longer than I anticipated and got a little bit carried away. Guys, heaven needs to captivate our imaginations. It needs to be that when you close your eyes, let your mind go to heaven. When you're sitting at home and you're suffering, you're you're, you're having an argument with somebody you love, or there's there's an injustice that you've become a victim of in your life, there's a sin that you're battling and you can't seem to get free from. It's in those moments that you need need to transport the reality of heaven into your mind with you. Those things are temporary. Those, heart, those hurts, those habits, those hang-ups, those things are temporary. Heaven is your eternal home. Christ follower, let it bring you comfort. Let it bring you courage to endure in difficult relationships where you want to represent Jesus. Let it bring you discipline to wake up when you feel you want to lie and, and, connect with, and, and rather connect with Jesus. Let it bring you comfort when your heart is sad and troubled. Jesus, would you hear our prayers now? Oh God, we're so humbled. You would invite us in to be with you, to be in a home with you, to belong in a family with you, to live in a perfect, redeemed and renewed creation a place of abundance and beauty and deliciousness where there is no evil, there is no sin, there is no suffering, and there is no death. Jesus, would you, would you write the, brand these truths, sear them into our hearts, God. Don't let them be relegated to the realm of fantasy or one day when we get there, God, take the coin from our eyes and, and cause us to see reality and this life in the context of reality, Jesus. I pray for those who are suffering right now, for those who are stuck in difficult relationships, miserable circumstances, suffering, living a life you never thought you'd end up in, and suddenly you're in it and that's yours. I pray that the reality of heaven would bring a fresh wave of courage and comfort to present circumstances. I pray, Lord Jesus, today for those who are being pruned in their character. You're suffering, but you realize in the midst of your suffering, this, this, this hardship has woken you up to reality. It's forcing you to consider God and carry your own character in a way in which you never would have. You're just living in isol- in, in splendid bliss. And you're saying, God, I embrace this. Even this difficult thing, I'm embracing it, God, because in the midst of it, you are teaching me lessons. You are making me more like you. You are, you are, you are prying the clutches of this temporary world from my own heart, and you are, you are grasping me yourself with the wonder of eternity. Jesus, change my heart in the midst of this hardship, I pray. Christ, I pray for those, I pray for the more senior folk amongst us, Jesus, that you would spend your days living in the ways of heaven now on earth. You wouldn't waste another second. Probably you'll be there sooner than most of us. That And You would not waste one more second of your time. I pray you would sober us, Lord Jesus, to the reality of heaven. I pray for those of us, God, who've tried to create heaven on earth now. And we can't sacrifice and we can't give up because we've got to squeeze it all in now and you would say, no, no, you can sacrifice. You can go without. You can can bless. You can serve. You can give away because you will have abundance for eternity, Jesus. I pray for young people today, Jesus. Like Edwards, I resolve to live my life to secure as much happiness as I can in the world to come. I pray, Jesus, the truth of heaven would ruin us forever for the ordinary, for the kingdom of self, and would rouse us forever to live for your kingdom now, Jesus. Jesus, our great prayers, a community would be, Make us a place on earth, a community on earth, a family on earth that would represent to a watching world the reality of heaven, Jesus. That more and more outsiders, more and more orphans would be brought in to become part of this family, Jesus. Because we take your word seriously and we align our lives to it. Holy Spirit, would you help us, we pray, God, help us to repent of sin. I wonder if there's some today. Sorry, band, I'm just feeling to pray prophetically for us more than just to sing right now. I just feel some prophetic prayers. Pray for those who, there's some specific sin in your life, it's just lived too long. You actually just wanna serve notice on that thing. You say, this far, no further. Maybe there's a wound from your past. And that past wound is, It's robbing you from being able to live the way God wants you to live. You can't trust people because you can't forgive the past. You can't trust people to the future. And God would say, no, it's time to no longer allow that wound from the past to shape your present. But actually, it's your identity as a citizen of the future in heaven that needs to shape your identity in the present not your hurt from the past. So you may need to take some steps toward bringing that to the light and trusting Jesus. God, I pray as a church for those who've maybe struggled in spiritual disciplines. You just It's like a duty, or you just give up. Oh, it's so easy just to. I pray for fresh zeal to be with you, Christ, Now. Will you, Holy Spirit, inspire hearts, inspire discipline and minds, courage, Lord Jesus, to engage in spiritual disciplines as a means to experiencing your grace this side of heaven to ready us and transform us for the life to come in eternity with you, Jesus. And perhaps for some who are suffering with illness or just even age, your body is not holding up anymore. And it's, I pray for sustaining grace for you now. As you remember, this body is temporary, but you are an eternal being. Paul said in Second Corinthians, he said, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Amen.